Hello, everybody, and welcome to another installment of In Flight Audio. In today's episode, we'll explore a unique Japanese financing product, the Joel and the Joelco. Japan has a long history of leveraged leases, or JLLs, that provided an economically efficient means for airlines to purchase new fleet, dating back to at least 1985. That product has transformed over the past 30 years or so into what we now know as the Joel and the Joelco. I think it's fair to say that the JLL and then the Joel and the Joelco has financed hundreds, if not thousands, of the world's aircraft machines. And despite the turbulent past few years, the Joel and the Joko have stood the test of time and remain an important financing source for the world's passenger jets. My name is Olivia Matsushita, a partner in the Tokyo office of Pillsbury's Asset Finance Practice, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Lassard, our global head of finance, who is based in Pillsbury's New York office and a veteran in the aviation finance and leasing industry. Well, thank you, Olivia, and it's really great to be here today. So, the Japanese leverage lease was traditionally used by Japanese airlines. Why was it that the JLL and later the JOL and the JOLCO came to be used by other carriers around the world, including US, Asian, and European airlines? Thanks, Mark. I think the product was and is still very attractive, not only to the Japanese airlines, but also international airlines. Because it offers airlines access to a lower cost of funds for financing what can be extraordinarily expensive equipment. Mark, let's briefly take a step back though. What exactly is the Joel and the Joelco that we're talking about here today? Well, put simply, these structures are used to deploy Japanese equity. The Joel is an operating lease, typically without a purchase option. Here, the investor takes on the asset risk because the aircraft is returned to the investor at the end of the lease and needs to be sold or remarketed. The Joel Co., on the other hand, is more of a financial product since a fixed purchase option is built in. Joel Co.s are structured with a high degree of care to ensure that this purchase option is exercised. In both cases, the investor is the owner or the lessor of the equipment and leases the aircraft to an airline for mid to long term lease, typically. Eight to 12 years. Are we generally talking about a single investor here or a pool of Japanese investors providing the capital to finance the acquisition of these aircraft? And, you know, what, what is it that lures these investors to the product? Well, traditionally, the investor profile is small to medium sized businesses or SMEs that have tax capacity. By this, we mean Japanese corporates that have fairly substantial taxable profits that can be. Reduced through depreciation of the metal and the interest payments on the loan. Many JOLCOs are actually structured using a TK, which stands for Tokumei Kumiai, or an NK, standing for Nini Kumiai in Japanese. The TK or the NK is like a silent partnership in which the investor obtains a share of the profits and losses, including tax losses. The TK structure is geared to any number of small investors. Which allows for very broad syndication. The NK, on the other hand, is more geared to a single large investor. I think the real beauty mark for the investors lies in the tax depreciation benefits that the Japanese equity investors are able to obtain through their proportional ownership in the TK or the NK. Those are accelerated tax losses that can then be applied to offset the investor's core taxable income. So, Mark, on the same topic, 
What is the minimum equity contribution that is required from the Japanese equity investors? Japanese equity investors, Olivia, will usually invest around 20 or 30% of the cost of the equipment. And the balance of the purchase price is funded through bank loans or other types of debt. While we've worked with plenty of international banks funding these structures over the years, recent changes in Japanese withholding rules have meant that lenders need to have a Japanese lending license in order for the borrower to take full advantage of all available interest deductions. JOL transactions are typically back-leveraged with mezzanine or parent debt. So in those transactions, we don't usually see a mortgage on the metal. That means that an airline could get 100% financing of the asset cost up front, right, Olivia? Yes, that's, that's spot on, Martin. Assuming you can strike a commercial deal with the JOLCO, operators can get 100% financing for the cost of the machine. When these advance rates are combined with secular declines in Japanese interest rates, the JOLCO financing becomes very attractive for airlines. I think that's a good time now, Mark, to talk about the call option and, and how this works. Yes, the CO on the JOL. Good idea. So there's one key feature of the structure. The JOLCO, unlike the JOL, has this purchase option, where the aircraft can be sold to the airline prior to the end of the lease for today's estimated fair market value. You see, JOLCO investors don't typically have the technical ability to manage lease returns, to evaluate, let alone operate an aircraft at the end of its lease term. They're financial investors. They don't want to take residual asset risk. So redelivery conditions and other terms are carefully crafted to mitigate the risk that the aircraft would be returned. At the same time, the Japanese tax rules do state that the investor must take some residual risk in the asset in order to qualify as an operating lease, which provides access to the tax benefits. So it's a bit of a balancing act. So I guess the next obvious question that our listeners might be wondering about is whether we've ever seen an airline not exercise this purchase option. That's a good question, Mark. Historically, JOCOs were only offered to the best of airline credits, such as flag carriers with implicit state backing, to limit this risk. And prior to the pandemic, the answer would likely have been no, or certainly that would have been an, an astonishing outcome. But as our listeners may be aware, a number of JOLCO aircraft were rejected in recent bankruptcy proceedings. And so this is certainly a possibility, and one that wouldn't necessarily have come to the limelight prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Just coming on to the pandemic, Mark, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about how the JOLCO product has fared during the, the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure thing, Olivia. Aviation was in its infancy the last time a pandemic of this magnitude fell on the world. So this is really a first-of-its-kind event for aviation. And it had two significant negative effects. First, it temporarily destroyed the ability of airlines to generate revenue, which in turn hammered aircraft asset values. So it was really a perfect storm for aviation. Many airlines that didn't receive sufficient levels of government support were not able to weather this storm and had to file for bankruptcy. This resulted in restructured lease cash flows and in some cases, yes, returned aircraft. Unlike institutional equity, as we've just referenced above, these retail investors, they don't have the ability to take assets back and inject fresh capital into the structure. So that did leave some deals vulnerable 
to lender foreclosure actions. In most cases, there was a cooperative approach. The loan cash flows were recut to match the new lease, and the equity participants were, were left in the deal to try and recoup their investment over time. But in a few instances, distressed debt funds acquired the loan positions and took actions that were not necessarily in collaboration with the Japanese equity managers. The J.P. Lee's Vietjet case is a well-publicized example where the equity manager went head-to-head with distressed investors to force an orderly sale process. So it has been a period that really did stress test the product, there's no doubt. But that's also the case for other asset classes too. Importantly, industry participants have been working together to alleviate the circumstances as best they can to find wherever possible amicable solutions. As we've seen at Pillsbury, the number of cargo operators interested in the JOLCO through the pandemic has certainly increased, and investor appetite does remain and is on the rise again as airlines find their footing and become profitable. I think it's a structure that's not going to easily fade away. Indeed. And thank you for those helpful insights, Mark. I think, you know, one of the other challenges in restructuring the JOLCO is that it involves not only a pool of lenders, but also Japanese equity investors. And so at a practical level, there's less flexibility to amend the documentation once it's put in place, because you always need to bear in mind that it requires consent from your investor group and not just your lenders. It's a little bit more time-consuming in that sense. Great point. Mark, just coming back to the types of airlines that have used the JOLCO already, I understand the product is very much open to U.S. carriers too. Can you tell us about the appetite for U.S. airlines accessing the JOLCO market? Yes, definitely, Olivia. Pillsbury was one of the first law firms to pioneer a structure that enabled U.S. airlines to get this lift from the JOLCO product. And Pillsbury attorneys have been at the forefront of the U.S. JOLCO for many years now. We don't have time to cover the structuring and tax aspects of the U.S. JOLCO today, but I would certainly encourage our listeners to reach out to Pillsbury attorneys in your time zone to learn more about this product and how it can be used in in multiple jurisdictions. I will say that we have pioneered several U.S. JOLCO deals, and we're certainly happy to continue moving this product forward. Thank you, Mark. Well, everybody, that's all we have time for today on the magic of the JOLCO. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast, and if so, please do give it a big thumbs up on whatever media platform you have listened to it on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.